are listening to Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio vs. the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's Season 7 of Ohio vs. the World. We're back after a long break. Sorry to take a little more time than usual, but this show takes a rested host and a lot of research, so there you go. The biggest story during our hiatus is clearly the war in Ukraine. Today's episode is one we had in our production plan this season, even before Putin's war. I mean, I guess you'd have to say we've been in a new Cold War with Russia for 15 years. But there's one thing that has kept this global adversarial relationship cold and not a hot shooting war. Since it began 75 years ago, following World War II, when we fought together as allies against the Nazis. That thing that's been keeping it cold is nuclear weapons. The United States and Russia to this day have had hundreds, if not thousands, of nuclear weapons pointed at each other since the 1950s. 70 years of a nuclear standoff. It's the reason we can't intervene more than we have in the unjust invasion of Ukraine. It's also showing the rest of our enemies and even our allies the importance of having a nuclear arsenal. A conflict like this will surely start a new nuclear arms race. That's not something I hear enough people talking about, but I think it's something that definitely, definitely could happen. But today's episode is about the original nuclear arms race. Today we are talking about how the 70-plus year Armageddon standoff between the U.S. and Russia began. We'll be telling a spy story today, a spy story that happens, of course, remember this is Ohio v. the World, that took place in part in Dayton, Ohio. We'll tell the story of the sleeper agent that got away, the story of George Koval the Iowa-born-and-raised Soviet nuclear spy that sent invaluable information to Stalin's Russia that helped them get the atom bomb many years before experts around the world thought they would. We'll see appearances by the former KGB agent-turned-Russian president for life, Vladimir Putin. We'll tell the story of the Manhattan Project, the greatest research and development project in American governmental history. We'll go into the story of how the Americans built the bomb and how George Koval, serving as a U.S. Army scientist at the Oak Ridge facility in Tennessee and in Dayton, Ohio, as part of what was known as the Dayton Project, how Koval committed treason and secretly sent those findings and plans on how to make an atomic bomb to his former homeland as a trained agent of the GRU, the Soviet Intelligence Department. Ohio vs. the World is back for our seventh season, our second season on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com, listen to all of our past episodes. Some great history shows on the network. I know they're in the process of adding new history shows, and, and we'll share those programs as the season goes on. You can always visit our show's website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Join our Facebook page. We're always posting on there and having discussions with our fans. You can follow us on Instagram at OhioVTheWorldPodcast to get all the latest content, or just email me at OhioVTheWorld at gmail.com with show ideas. If you want to buy a comfortable OhioVTheWorld t-shirt, or if you just want to tell me how much you love the show. Although if you're doing that, heaping praise on our great program, please leave us a review on iTunes as well. That really helps bump us up in the rankings. If you scroll down on your phone on iTunes, uh, you can put a five-star review in there with some comments about what you enjoy. In fact, we, we've got a bunch of awesome new Ohio V the World bumper stickers that we'll be giving away on our Facebook page this year. Thanks to our friends at Mysterioso Rock Art. They make the t-shirts as well. Thanks, and those bumper stickers turned out great. As the war in the Ukraine rages, we'll go back to one of Russia's biggest intelligence and espionage wins, the stealing of the plans for the ultimate weapon from the United States, a weapon that sits at the fingertips of a dictator and world supervillain Vladimir Putin today, with the potential to end the world as we know it. As the doomsday clock ticks to one minute till midnight, we'll still have some fun and give you the history of the Manhattan Project and the spy that got away. It's episode one, Ohio versus Russia. George Koval is the subject of today's episode, and George is not someone who's known as a famous spy, mostly because he got away. He's known in Russia probably more than he's known here, except now, and that's thanks to our first guest, Ohio native, award-winning author and journalist, Anne Hagedorn. She grew up in Dayton, the city we'll be spending some time in today. She graduated from Shaker Heights High in Cleveland, then went on to the prestigious Denison University here in central Ohio. And she wrote for many years the Wall Street Journal, lived in Greenwich Village for you know 20-some years, and, and has now moved back to, to southern Ohio. 
Her book, Sleeper Agent, from Simon & Schuster last year, it's nominated for the prestigious Edgar Award, uh, is about George Koval. She broke a lot of new ground in this methodically researched page-turner of a book. You can get it anywhere. I just saw it last week at my local Barnes & Noble being featured in the history section, and it is a fantastic read. It's one of the best books of 2021. But we asked her right off the bat, what makes George Koval such an interesting subject as a spy? George was a traitor. You know, it's true. He, he committed the crime of treason. Um, he was a traitor to his country of origin. Part of his power in blending in was that he was everybody's favorite. You know, I mean, he was charming. And so that was part of his power. He wasn't a killer. He, he, you know, he wasn't out there uh, killing people to get information. He got information through his work. He's a very interesting example of how a a sleeper agent can work. It goes beyond the Soviet espionage, the atomic bomb. It really goes to the point of why does someone become a spy? And it's something that really we should understand. The war in Ukraine reached the capital overnight. Ukrainian officials say there was street fighting and explosions. What is your reaction to what has been happening overnight at the capital? Well, uh, I, I, I was shocked. Mr. Putin wants to restore. He has actually two goals. First, to restore the Soviet Union. And the second goal is, of course, uh, humiliate America, which in his imagination, Putin's imagination, uh, destroyed the Soviet Union. While we were on break, I remember telling Mrs. Ohio v. The World in the days leading up to the war that I didn't think Putin would launch a full-scale invasion. I was clearly wrong about how nuts he is. You know, that scholar saying he wants to restore the Soviet Union, I don't know if I so much would go for that. He certainly does pine for the superpower status of his KGB days, but it's not like he's trying to add those Central Asian countries or bring back communism. But I'll tell you one thing he loves to do, and that's try and stick it to America in the West. 2007, he did just that when he gave George Koval, the subject of today's show, he awarded him posthumously with the Hero of the Russian Federation Award the highest honor he can give a citizen. Our next guest, Ray Smith, a historian at the Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Y-12 Museum. Oak Ridge is kind of the center of the Manhattan Project, and we'll talk about Koval's time there in Tennessee. But we asked Ray about Vladimir Putin honoring George Koval so publicly in 2007. The KGB knew about him, and Putin obviously had had knowledge of what was going on in the KGB. Now, when Koval came back to Russia, after having been in the United States, spied in Oak Ridge and and Dayton, he actually became a professor and spent most of his remaining years not being recognized nor publicly uh, acknowledged as anything more than just a professor. So there were people who knew about him and knew what he had done However, the official recognition provided by Putin was the first, and and that was after his death, was the first time that he was given any recognition for his contribution to to the nuclear industry in Russia. George Koval spent 60-plus years of his long life living in Russia. His family, all Russian Jews, came to America before he was born. This Union of the Russian Federation Award winner, he was born and raised in the Midwest, in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm always fascinated by migrations of people, discussion we had in our first season about black migration to the north in the early 20th century, uh, the Great Migration, as it's called, when we were discussing Jesse Owens. Now his family came to Cleveland. Go back and listen to that episode, uh, a really good discussion with Ohio State University professor David Steigerwald. Go back and listen to that episode, Ohio versus the Nazis. But I've always been fascinated by the movements of people. How does a family of Russian Jews end up in moving to Iowa? Anne Hagedorn asked herself that question in her book, Sleeper Agent, and in her research, and she just couldn't find George's parents in the Ellis Island records, but she cracks that mystery, and it was really an interesting section of her book, Sleeper Agent, that we'll touch on just a little bit here, when she discussed something called the Galveston Movement. I tried to find records of his father coming through first and then his mother in 1910 and in 1911. And there was just nothing in the ship manifest of the records, Ellis Island. So I commented to an archivist at that the Center for Jewish History. And he said, oh, well, they may have come through Galveston, Texas. He said, yeah, that was the Ellis Island of the West, the Galveston movement which was a plan that was devised by prominent Jewish 
leaders in New York City in the early part of the 20th century, their concern was that at at that point, I think there were 100,000 Russian Jews coming over to America to escape the Russian pogroms. The problem was they were all coming through Ellis Island. They were ending up in the Lower East Side in New York, and it was creating sort of a ghetto. And these very smart individuals in New York uh, were concerned about that because they thought this could lead to immigration restrictions against Russian Jews coming into this country. We had to figure something out. So they came up with the idea of getting another port of entry. And Galveston seemed like the best. I found the records of George's father when he arrived in Galveston, when he was then taken to Sioux City, Iowa. They were married in Iowa. His parents were married in in Iowa. Iowa. Yeah. And then he was born in Iowa, right? George was. Yes. Yeah, he was born on Christmas Day, 1913. You know, another part of this was to develop strong Jewish communities in towns west of the Mississippi. I don't think a lot of people know about it, but I was fascinated by it. The Galveston movement. George Koval's raised and and lives an all-American childhood growing up in Iowa. Loves baseball. He's chasing girls. He's a good student. But after high school, the family goes back to Russia, which is now the Soviet Union. And Anne's book does such a just incredible job talking about the persecution of Russian Jews in late Tsarist Russia that led to the Kovals coming to the Midwest and having their son George born in the Hawkeye State. They go back to the Soviet Union during the Great Depression, and he gets married. He goes to school for science, but as the 1930s progress, the Soviet Union becomes a very, very difficult place to live. From 1936-1938, Stalin's purges begin. The systemic removal of anyone remotely a quote-unquote enemy to the Stalinist regime. Millions are jailed for little to no reason. Nearly a million, if not more, are killed by the state. It's a dangerous place to live and likely leads to George becoming a Soviet sleeper agent as World War II begins in 1939. It's a dark time that the Putin regime has gone to great lengths to expunge from Russian history. Critical Stalin theory is what I call it, but it's not something that is taught or even really recognized as much anymore in Putin's Russia as it was after the fall. Memorials have closed, whitewashed throughout the country, We talked to Anne about how living through Stalin's purge also likely led to George becoming a spy for the Soviet's GRU, the intelligence service, because this is not someone who is inherently anti-American. If I could have interviewed him, that's what I would have asked him first. Why did you do this? He grew up in a household where the ideals were focused on ending world oppression. Communism seemed the answer. One of the reasons his family came to America, and there were several members of his family who did from Tsarist Russia, it was the anti-Semitism. Well, after the Russian Revolution, 1917, anti-Semitism was illegal. It was illegal in combination with the rise of anti-Semitism in America in the 1920s. Uh, 1932, he and his family, he went with his parents and his two brothers back to the Soviet Union. He was married in 1936. Just shortly after that, there were Stalin's purges. If World War II had not begun on September 1st, 1939, which was exactly when he got his September 1st, 1939 was life-changing for everyone. He could have gone further with his education and science. I think the answer to the question of why he did what he did there and being in trouble with Soviet uh, internal police for not reporting something. And then the fact that her father, his wife's father, was high up in the czar's army. There, there were risks. I mean, risk. I mean, for one thing, he owned a typewriter and someone in the house where they lived had reported that he owned a typewriter. There was a list of things that they could have presented to him that could have put his family in danger. I think that when George began his interviews and he was recruited for obvious reasons because of what we talked about, he could blend in so well. He was uh, already Americanized. I mean, it took sometimes two years, I think, to train sleeper agents, but he did not require a lot of training. So it's all a matter of timing. Timing uh, when, you know, Stalin's purges in the late 1930s, the need for more Red Army intelligence agents, his being quite a gem, and then the fact that he wanted to protect his family. 
if he was a Soviet spy in America, he was going, his family was going to be well taken care of. Our guest, Anne Hagedorn's hit book from 2021, is called Sleeper Agent. Again, there's a link in the notes to, to buy it, and we'll put it up on our social media as well. Really incredible book. But that's what George was. He's a sleeper agent. I was always a big fan of the show Homeland. That term sleeper agent was fascinating to me. And George was the perfect person for this role. Grew up in Iowa. Background checks in the 1940s, not as easily done as they are now. He returns to the United States, a citizen, moves to New York City, he doesn't have an accent. I don't know what kind of accent people from, from Iowa have. I'd have to ask my, my boy Andrew Dotson. He's a listener. He's worked out in Iowa before to see what they sound like. But I can guarantee you it doesn't sound Russian. But we asked Anne, what is a sleeper agent? A sleeper agent is a spy without diplomatic cover, sometimes called an, a quote-unquote illegal, and uh, one who blends into everyday life in the target country, occasionally checking in with his handler and working in normal jobs. In this case, Koval uh, worked at an electronics shop on West 23rd Street in Manhattan, and he lived in the Bronx. From February 1943 on, he his cover was the U.S. Army. He was trained in the Soviet Union by the military, so he was a Soviet military-trained intelligence agent. He wasn't what they call a walk-in. He wasn't someone who had idealistic beliefs in communism, so walked in the door to uh, maybe the Communist Party USA. You know, he didn't mingle with other spies. He, he was a skilled scientist, and he uh, mingled with other scientists. Those were his peers, not members of the Communist Party. And, you know, he didn't have that, those uh, political connections that could have exposed him. And then, you know, basically, because he grew up in Iowa, he had no Russian accent, and he knew American culture quite well. He had spent his childhood in Iowa. He played baseball. He, he was a skilled shortstop. He could even reel off stats about pitchers uh, on all teams, though his favorite was the Yankees. He belonged to two bowling leagues. Uh, you know, he simply blended in. I was having dinner over at my parents' house recently telling them about this episode. My mother said, well, you got to talk about Einstein's letter. And she's right. We, we'd already done it. But in 1938 in Germany, I repeat, 1938 Germany, there's two scientists in Berlin who inadvertently discovered nuclear fission, the splitting of the atom. By bombing uranium with neutrons, you split the nucleus of the uranium atom, create barium, yada, yada, yada. I won't bore you too much with the science, but this is a monumental moment in human history, so it bears some review. I was a horrible science student, not, not bad at math, but science was a nightmare. For this episode, I did have to learn more about you know, nuclear physics. The implications of this finding and the massive amounts of energy released in this process they become apparent to physicists all over the world. It's some of the worst timing in human history. Nazi Germany has unlocked the idea of how to make an atom bomb on the eve of World War II. This could have gone way worse. They're applying Einstein's E equals MC squared. The power of such a weapon alarms American physicists, especially at Columbia University. They speak with Einstein. They get him to sign a letter that they fire off to explain this new concept, its importance to President Roosevelt. The atomic age has begun. Ray Smith talks to us about that important letter, Einstein's letter, from 1938 to the president. Uh, that letter is a pivotal letter, of course, for the Manhattan Project. It was the first time that President Roosevelt had been made aware of the uh, uranium situation. Uh, Leo Szilard actually wrote the content of the letter. He and, uh, and Albert Einstein signed it. They used Albert Einstein, because his reputation, I mean, he was a recognized scientist and they thought the president would pay attention to that. And of course, Einstein immediately understood the implications and the potential for use of, of uranium-235 to make a weapon. So he agreed to uh, to sign the letter. And, and of course, they 
they had to use a roundabout way to get it to the president, and and they did. Uh, they actually used Alexander Sachs to get it to him. It did have the desired effect. By 1942, the Manhattan Project is named. It's underway. And that's thanks in part to a $500 million in funding from President Roosevelt. That's in the budget, but what it's being used for is not disclosed. Senators like Harry Truman of Missouri are trying to find out what that money's being used for. They're quickly told to just drop it. And they do, for the most part. It's called the Manhattan Project because General Leslie Groves, who was appointed the head of the atom bomb project, uh, that's where their first office was. It was at 270 Broadway in Manhattan. Historian Ray Smith tells us about the start of the Manhattan Project. He, in fact, uh, formed the Manhattan Project, uh, started a, a, a committee. President Roosevelt knew that getting involved in this uranium situation was going to be an expensive undertaking. Eventually, through the committee's work, uh, General Groves was put in charge of it. Groves, as you know, had just finished building the Pentagon. Right. So he had a, a, a good deal of experience with, with a large construction project. He knew how to get private industry involved in construction, and <laughs> he knew how to spend money. Scientists like Enrico Fermi, Leo Zillard, and others, they're working on fission projects at Columbia University in Manhattan. There's a young scientist that begins taking classes there at the same time named, you guessed it, George Koval. The work at Columbia is being described in newspapers, the revolutionary nuclear physics that would lead to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, just a few short years away, is happening in Manhattan. Anne Hagedorn tells us about her not believing in the coincidence of George Koval taking science classes at Columbia when he did. A long time ago, when I worked at the Wall Street Journal and covered federal trials, uh, I, I interviewed a prosecutor at one point and asked him, you know, what advice do you give to people doing investigative work? And he said uh, two things, uh, use timelines and chronologies and don't believe there are any coincidences. This detail about Koval taking a course at Columbia was just a little line in one of the FBI reports. You know, it was just a little line, a chem one or two chemistry courses, spring semester 1941. What I found in, you know, dig deeper in the nuclear physics timeline, use that great tool, the timeline, and I learned that by the time of Koval's enrollment in 1941, Columbia had it had become a magnet for some of the most highly regarded physicists and chemists in the world. You know, some who were destined to play stellar roles in the upcoming production of the first atomic bomb. Also, the fact that in the New York Times in May of 1940, there was a, an article that went into great detail about what was happening at, at Columbia in physics. It, it was an article that his handler who, by several accounts, people interviewed later, said, read on a daily basis, the Daily Worker and the New York Times. So voila, his handler had definitely read that article. Uh, so his handler knew what was happening at Columbia. His handler also knew that George had a degree in chemistry. Uh, so he could probably take a course at Columbia and do well and do well at mingling Add to that what I learned at about the same time, again, from timelines, the USSR was sending student spies to enroll in America's top schools of science, like MIT and Columbia, to be part of scientific circles, to do networking, you know, uh, among scientists. So, you know, all of this pointed to no coincidence. George wasn't just taking a course because he loved chemistry. A site for the development of the atomic materials needed for a bomb began at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee, some 20, 25 miles west of, of Knoxville. That's the place that was chosen by General Groves, as well as because of those high ridges of the Appalachians around it, to kind of sort of contain any giant, you know, accidental explosion. They didn't know what was going to happen. The city of Oak Ridge is created out of basically nothing. It would grow in two years to become the fifth largest city in Tennessee. We talk with Oak Ridge historian and Manhattan Project expert Ray Smith about the Oak Ridge site, which would soon welcome a health physicist by the name of George Koval. They didn't really know what they were working with. First time it had ever been done. And if uh, if something were to happen, 
those ridges would project the blast up in the air. Yeah. General Groves had left his first meeting and come by train down to the Knoxville and spent the night over there in the Andrew Johnson Hotel, then came over and looked at the area and made the decision to buy it. Now, it wasn't the first time it had been looked at, obviously, but he, he then made the decision to go ahead because he knew he needed a site. He needed something to get started doing something. So this area that came to be known as Oak Ridge was the first place he chose. Uh, and, and thinking that he might put everything here, I believe, but of course, Robert Oppenheimer convinced him differently. And the fact that they were gonna need more reactors than just the graphite reactor caused him to look at Washington State up at Hanford to put the reactors up there that produced the plutonium. And of course, Oppenheimer knew about the area around uh, Santa Fe, north of Santa Fe, up on the uh, up on the mesa there, that and it became the Los Alamos National Laboratory, where the design was done. But here in Oak Ridge uh, is where the uranium was obtained for Little Boy, and of course they proved the principle that you could produce plutonium with the uranium reactors. Ray Smith was a historian at the Y-12 uranium enrichment site in Oak Ridge for many years. Oak Ridge is the subject of a really fun, interesting book called The Girls of Atomic City by Denise Kiernan in 2013. Very popular book. A book that's subtitled The Untold Story of the Women Who Helped Win World War II. She talks about women like Gladys Owens. She worked on the Calutron machine like tens of thousands of other young ladies at Oak Ridge. It's a mass spectrometer used to separate uranium isotopes, but they didn't know what they were doing. It's part of this high-level compartmentalization. That was standard with the ultra-secret Manhattan Project. They were in a hurry. Remember, they thought they were in a race with Germany uh, to get that bomb. And and by the way, even early on, they were worried about uh, information, uh, they needing to keep... I mean, they wouldn't even let you say the word uranium. Uh, you know, it, it that, and when they taught the operators how to run these machines, they didn't tell them anything about what they were doing. At Y-12, there were 22,482 people working there in August of 1945. Many of them were young women right out of high school. We call them Calutron girls now, but back in the day, they were cubicle operators. And one of them, Gladys Owens, well, she came back in 2004. I took Gladys out to Y-12, set her up on a stool, made her picture in the same place where, where she had been working back in the 40s. And she said, Ray... I never did know what I was doing when I was working out here. Can you show me? <laughs> I said, yeah, Gladys, I can show you. So I reached down and opened up one of the cabinet doors, and I said, Gladys, when you were adjusting these knobs, that's what they did eight hours a day for every shift. They kept that meter on a certain point. When it drifted to a control point, they'd bring it back. And that's, that's what she did, and that was all she knew. I said, when you were adjusting those knobs, you were changing the value of a rheostat down here. She reached over and tapped me on the arm. She said, Ray, I still don't know what I was doing. I just also said that the way they kept the secret was that you weren't allowed to talk about anything you were doing. In fact, she was still worried about it when she came back 65 years later. What can I say, Ray? And we did an interview with her, and I said, Gladys, you don't know anything you can't say. <laughs> so <laughs> it's all right for you to talk. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Ray tells us more about how they kept this giant secret at Oak Ridge. I understand we're talking today about how the Manhattan Project was leaked to the Soviets, how it wasn't kept secret, but in actuality, a project of this size at multiple sites around the country, it's pretty incredible how secret it was kept project of such global importance you wonder how they kept it from people like harry truman he's the vice president of the united states 
He'd take over in 1945 upon FDR's death. He didn't know about the atom bomb project. He's briefed shortly after taking over. I always found this interesting, the keeping of giant secrets in history. We talk with Ray about how General Groves kept the secret at Oak Ridge, at least how he thought he had kept the secret of the atomic superweapon. And Gladys said, if you talked about the plant that, uh, you know, the, and that somebody heard you the next day, you wouldn't be here. He said, I had to keep a stack of blank three by five cards in my pocket. And if I heard anybody talking about the project, I had to write down what I heard, who said it, and where it was. And I had to put it in an envelope and send it to the Acme Finance Company. Now, if I didn't hear anything on Friday, I had to send a blank card. And so they were spying on one another. And if anybody heard anybody talking about the project, they reported it. Before the war starts, George is drafted into the Army, and he rapidly moves his way up the ranks. We talked to Ann Hagedorn about George Koval's rise in the U.S. Army and his joining the Manhattan Project. There was really no reason for to question his loyalties. He scored so high on the Army classification test. I think he scored a 152. Anything above 115 was considered high. He was in New York until February of 1943. Then he was at Fort Dix. Then he was at the Citadel. And then he was sent back to New York, to City College of New York, as part of the Army Specialized Training Project. While he was there, then he was upgraded to something called the Special Engineer Detachment. And those were highly respected scientists who were sent to different sites of the the Manhattan Project. Then he ended up at Oak Ridge in August 1944, Dayton, June 1945. George gets a posting at Oak Ridge in Tennessee. And if you were a spy, it's about the most perfect job you could have in the secretive Oak Ridge National Nuclear Facility. He's a health physicist. Health physicists studied safety procedures to protect workers from radiation contamination, and they had access everywhere, every building, every department. George Koval, a trained GRU Soviet spy, a sleeper agent, has access to everything, and perhaps the most secretive and important operation in U.S. military history. Groves had this philosophy of compartmentalization. If you needed to know something to do your job, that was fine, but you didn't need to know what was going on in another part of the plant or in another building. And, and one of the interesting things that I find about George Koval being a Russian spy in Oak Ridge during the Manhattan Project, he was able to move from one location to the other in Oak Ridge. That was highly unusual. The U.S. starts making two types of atom bombs. It's not easy. It's taking a lot of time. Tens of thousands of people are working to make the parts and do the radioactive work for both of these bombs. The bombs had names, and we asked Ray to tell us about both Fat Man and Little Boy. The difference between Fat Man and Little Boy is primarily that Fat Man was a plutonium-based bomb, and Little Boy was a uranium bomb. If you take a thousand pounds of ore, there's only seven pounds of uranium-235. And the 235 is what you need. So it took 1,152 calutrons, batch processes, took nearly a year, 22,482 people working at that plant just to separate about a gallon, less than a gallon, uh, 60 kilograms, 140 pounds, of your of 235 and they would actually ship it out from y12 in small gold line coffee cup size containers put two of them in a briefcase in a powder form now put it in a briefcase strap it to a lieutenant's arm dress him up to look like a salesman send him on a passenger train up through chicago and out to los alamos the manhattan project was in multiple places including a very important project located in dayton ohio it's known now as the dayton project and it was under the renowned scientist Charles Allen Thomas, a Dayton native. Dayton, Ohio is the home of the Wright brothers, the great inventor Charles Kettering, the giant National Cash, Cash Register Company, and others. And it, it had the most patents issued per capita than any city in the country. It was also the hometown of our guest and author, Ann Hagedorn. The Dayton Project was created in 1944. 
to produce the trigger to initiate the chain reactions to explode the bomb. That radioactive element number 84 in our periodic table is called polonium. It's very difficult to make. It became the aim of the Dayton Project. Being shuttled into and out of the suburb of Oakwood where Anne grew up, there's even work being done in the Runnymede Theater in Oakwood. Uh, it's owned by the Dayton Project leader's wife, uh, her family. The neighbors would see trucks coming, going, all hours. They knew better than to ask questions during this world war. There's so much great stuff in Anne's book, Sleeper Agent, about the Dayton Project. Again, there's a link in our show notes to buy that, that book. You know, It's a project that really isn't revealed for decades. An experienced scientist from Oak Ridge was now living and working in Dayton in 1945, George Koval. He would now be focusing on the polonium processing efforts here in Ohio and sending those secrets back to Mother Russia. I've always wanted to write about how great Dayton is, <laughs> and I called Dayton the startup capital of the first half of the 20th century, which it was. With the Manhattan Project, there are many details about the polonium. Thanks to a wonderful public librarian in Ripley, Ohio, I discovered a 400-page document that went into all kinds of details about the polonium at the Dayton Project, what the Dayton Project was all about. It was written in 1956, and it was found in a Atomic Energy Commission archive. The polonium was classified for a long time. The, the assignment at the Dayton site was the production and purification of polonium, codenamed Postum, and the challenges were staggering. There had never been enough polonium produced even to see it much less provide the necessary quantity to fuel the initiators for the atomic bombs. And so what you, without going into too much of the science, it is rather fascinating that the bombs had to incorporate a neutron producing mechanism. You know, they called it the initiator or the trigger that would release the neutrons at exactly the right moment to ignite the chain reaction. So in 1943, they realized they needed the polonium for the trigger of the bomb, bombs, both of them. Synthesizing the polonium by reading bismuth was an experiment. In Oak Ridge and Hanford, the synthesizing through irradiating the bismuth was working. In late spring of 1945, Dayton was uh, turned into a processing plant. And then after a, the polonium was processed, then it was taken to Los Alamos. As the saying goes, the rest is history. But, but part of the history is rarely includes uh, the challenge of the polonium and the sort of heroic efforts of the scientists in the Manhattan Project, and especially in Dayton, to send enough polonium to Los Alamos for the triggers. The bombs were ready in July 1945. The war with Germany had ended. The Allies were victorious in Europe. Stalin, Truman, Churchill, they meet at the Potsdam Conference, a small city in Germany. Many call Potsdam the start of the Cold War, and in many ways they're right. They met to discuss what to do with Germany, how to split it up, disarm the Third Reich completely, how to handle the myriad of other problems in Europe, how to deal with Japan, without making all those same mistakes like were made at the end of World War I and the infamous Treaty of Versailles. On July 16th, the United States had successfully tested the gadget, a plutonium-based bomb, and it performs perfectly, better than expected, in the New Mexico desert. Truman's elated, and at Potsdam, he tells Stalin about this new ultimate weapon, and he, he remembers that you know, Stalin barely reacts. He says something like, glad to hear it. This should have been our first signal that the Russians knew more than we thought. Following his arrival for the tripartite conference, the president and Mr. Burns are guests of Premier Stalin and Russian Foreign Commissar Molotov at Soviet headquarters. The formal sessions of the conference get underway with President Truman chosen to preside over the meetings. Premier Stalin exchanges handshakes with Prime Minister Churchill and British Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden. I love the fact that you brought up the Potsdam when that meeting began. It was the day after the first atomic bomb in the history of the world was tested. Stalin might have rea barely reacted, but told Kurchatov, Igor Kurchatov, who was running the science for the Soviet uh, atomic bomb project, which had started in 1943. He demanded that uh, Kurchatov speed things up. 
Kurchatov said 50% of what they learned was from Soviet espionage out of the West, whether you're talking about Klaus Fuchs at Los Alamos or George Koval at Oak Ridge and Dayton. What did that do? Cut the time. For example, you know, with the production of polonium, they knew they didn't have to spend two years trying to extract polonium from uranium ores through their Soviet spies about the sort of so-called recipe for polonium, which was irradiating bismuth happening at Oak Ridge and Hanford. So all of the experiments that the Americans spent very a, a lot of time on to develop the bomb, uh, a lot of those experiments didn't have to happen in the Soviet Union because they got the results of our experiments. Following Potsdam, preparations were being made to ship Fat Man, the plutonium bomb, and Little Boy, the uranium bomb, that they knew would work. They'd never even tested it. Both were on the ill-fated USS Indianapolis. That's a story for another day, but they're on their way out to Tinian Island in the Pacific to be flown and dropped over to Japanese cities. We're not having the discussion or the debate on this program about the morality or strategic necessity of dropping these doomsday weapons on Japan today. We're not going to have that discussion because you can go back and listen to our season premiere back in season two, Ohio vs. the Bomb, for that discussion, we profiled Paul Tibbetts, the pilot of the Enola Gay, who dropped the first bomb on Hiroshima. Tibbetts, a Columbus native, fascinating story there, but let's just say there's no debate among the U.S. civilian and military leadership about dropping these bombs. And certainly no debate that reached its way all the way up to President Truman. We talked to Ray Smith about how these weapons work. The U.S. dropped both bombs, killed a couple hundred thousand Japanese in these blasts with the injuries and radiation poisoning in the days and weeks following August 6, 1945, and August 9, 1945. It quickly brought about the unconditional surrender of the Japanese Empire and the end of the bloodiest war in human history. Ray also answers one of the questions I've always had. After Hiroshima and Nagasaki, did we really have any bombs left to drop? Then we'll hear from President Truman announcing the attack on Hiroshima. And Little Boy is just a gun barrel bomb. In other words, you put a little bit of... Uranium-235 at one end of a barrel, a little bit at the other end of a barrel, and a little bit of dynamite to blow them together. So when they come together, that's when you'd have the explosion. Now, Fat Man is a plutonium-based bomb, and that plutonium came from Hanford, Washington. And the way it worked is that you had a sphere of plutonium in the center with 32 implosion, uh, high explosives around it, and those high explosives would implode on that sphere of plutonium and compress it. And when it compressed it, it would get small enough and close enough together that the neutrons would start splitting the atom. So that's how the plutonium bomb worked. And the reason they tested Almagordo, New Mexico at the Trinity site is because if even one of those 32 implosions didn't go off at the same time, then you'd have a blowout. You wouldn't compress that cylinder or that uh, sphere of plutonium. They built two of them. One was the gadget, and they exploded it on July the 16th, 1945, and at the Trinity site. And then they had the fat man that they dropped on Nagasaki, identical uh, devices. But now, the two reasons for the you, for the little boy not being tested. One is they knew it would work. They just understood that if you get enough uranium-235 close enough together, that's all you have to do. So they, they knew that by shooting it down that gun barrel, it would work. And they also didn't have enough material to do a test and to do the bomb. Yeah. By the way, President Truman's threat to the Japanese that if they didn't Surrender, he'd bring a rain of ruin on them. <laughs> was a little bit of an empty threat. He didn't have another bomb. The only two was the only ones they had. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. 
The force from which the sun draws his power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. If they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a rain of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. We have spent more than $2 billion on the greatest scientific gamble in history, and we have won. But the greatest marvel is not the size of the enterprise, its secrecy, or its cost, but the achievement of scientific brains in making it work. We had to leave a lot of good stuff out on this podcast because you really need to go by and read Sleeper Agent by our guest Dan Hagedorn. It's on Audible as well for those who were like me that like to read and then also listen to other audiobooks in the car. The way that Koval got info back to Russia and other spycraft stuff that you just gotta you gotta find out for yourself. But one of the biggest things Koval did was just to confirm the other espionage that the Soviets were receiving. The plutonium information that he sent confirmed what Klaus Fuchs had already sent from Los Alamos. That's very important because the Soviets, when they would get information from Western spies, were skeptical, which, of course, you know, who was a double agent, et cetera, et cetera. But to have two people at two separate sites report the same thing, what George did was he confirmed for Kurchatov and the Soviet scientists that what Klaus Fuchs sent was accurate. Klaus Fuchs is always credited as being the main spy that gave the Manhattan Project info to Stalin. He's a German refugee. He worked on the bomb as a British scientist and then went to Los Alamos and was an integral part to the atom bomb success. The info that Fuchs was giving to the Russians was crucial, including that the better path to a bomb was to make a plutonium bomb. We talk about George Koval, his contribution to the USSR getting the bomb and, and doing their first test in August 1949, which was many years before the U.S. intelligence community believed uh, that role's been hidden until now. We talked to Ray Smith about Koval's role in the Soviet's successful August 29, 1949 nuclear test. He understood the, the difference in the two kinds of bomb. I'm convinced that the fact that, that he provided the information about the complexity in Oak Ridge, how many people it took, and how much effort it took to get the uranium, the fact that he provided that information, along with Klaus Fuchs from Los Alamos, who actually gave the plans for Fat Man to Russia before we ever used it. I'm convinced that those two things caused Russia to build a replica of Fat Man and not to pursue uh, the uranium bomb. The other plonium up at Dayton, he, that was a key insight that he could provide and I think the only thing about Oak Ridge is that he would have discouraged the pursuit of uranium because of the complexity. A uranium reactor producing plutonium, you can get to a bomb quicker. President Truman's dramatic announcement that Russia has created an atomic explosion sends reporters racing for Flushing Meadow, where Russia's Vashinsky arrives to address right. the United Nations. Mr. Vashinsky, have you got any statement about President Truman's statement please, on the atomic please, bomb? Please, please, excuse me. Does Russia have the atomic bomb? Yes, sir. Well, what you reply to me? do? The Russian foreign minister maintains his silence about Russia's atomic progress. We asked Anne what were the biggest contributions of George Koval to the Soviets getting the bomb. How exactly being a health physicist allowed Koval to provide information on radiation safety that no one else could have provided. Another breakthrough in her book is how crucial his leaking of the polonium made at the Dayton Project helped to likely cut the Russians' pursuit of an atom bomb in half. So I would say the three categories, well, four, would be the plutonium, a confirmation of Klaus Fuchs had sent the plant structures and the layout at Oak Ridge, polonium, and then radiation safety. He was a health physicist. That was a major aha moment for me because I found the archives in Oak Ridge that talked about his being a health physicist and what that meant. You know, what was his daily routine? I mean, you can't just say, okay, there was a Soviet spy at Oak Ridge in Dayton. Yeah. Okay, what were they doing? Well, if you're a health physicist, you have access to all the sites 
I mean, all the plants at the site, you have to, that's part of your job. The X10 plant, you know, was irradiating business for the polonium. And it was, you know, there was a graphite reactor that was the model for the plutonium production at Hanford. And George spent most of his time, it appears through the accounts and through the archives, he probably spent most of his time at X10, which is another reason why they wanted him in Dayton, because he knew so much about the polonium production. He sent information that showed plant structures at Oak Ridge, layouts, worker numbers, fuel volumes, productions, you know, at Oak Ridge, the polonium it was a major contribution from Koval, you know, the way to synthesize it, which was a lot quicker than getting it naturally from radium. So that really cut the time for the Soviets. Radiation safety, that's a contribution of Koval. And the proof of it is in a March 1949 port, he sent you know methods of radiation detection and measuring. The health physics department in the Manhattan Project began at Oak Ridge, and he was right there. Alger Hiss, former high state departmental official, is branded a communist spy by an American jury after a sensational trial. Another of the spy ring, Mrs. Ethel Rosenberg, who with her husband was convicted of actually transmitting the secrets to Russia through Soviet diplomatic channels. I was looking at the Wikipedia page for George Koval for a couple of dates that I'd forgotten in his life story. And it's said in there that Koval left on a European vacation in 1948 and never returned. Someone needs to go and change that. Koval fled America on a ship ironically titled America to go back to the Soviet Union and did painstaking research on his life, but especially on his post-war years in New York. He was dating. He had a job. He was in school. He had friends. He was a popular person. And then one day, he just disappeared. you got to read Sleeper Agent for that whole story. But let's just say things got hot. He was incredibly worried that he was going to be found out. And in a split decision, the agent, codenamed Delmar, was gone, never to return to the U.S. Anne tells us about his three years in the Big Apple after the war, before he slips out of New York Harbor. In February 1946, demobilized and moved back to New York. If you look at the timeline of what is known in terms of when he sent reports, received in February 1946 in Moscow, and then another very important one uh, that he wrote was in on March 1st, 1949. So big question, um, what happened when he went back to New York? Uh, he, he enrolled at uh, City College of New York uh, again to complete the degree that he had started while he was in the army. So he was in school all the time. And so he was keeping a low profile. By the time Hoover had, you know, was sending people out to find George Koval, which would have been July 1954. George had been gone for six years. George Koval would live out his days with his wife from before he left Russia. He had a family and was a teacher, was never given the recognition by the GRU or the KGB or the Soviet High Command that his work should have garnered him. He was forgotten. He lived until 2006 in Russia. As we close the story, we ask Anne about what was Koval's legacy? How does he fit into our understanding about how far Russia is willing to go to gain an edge on their archenemy, the United States of America? It really informs readers, I think, about the expertise and determination of Russian military intelligence. Koval's story reveals how Russia's spying got started many decades ago, unveiling some of the espionage techniques the Soviets pioneered during and after World War II. I mean, those details about the science students being sent over to the science schools, very interesting details. And I mean, it's obviously relevant because it shows how effective a thoroughly Americanized spy can be. And considering that there is once again a state of crisis with a Russian leadership seeking to restore Soviet-like dominance over Eastern Europe. From Garfield's tomb to the Serpent Mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading
Ship a canoe entirely too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation today is Sleeper Agent 2021 from Simon Schuster written by our guest today, the great Ohioan Ann Hagedorn. There's a link in the show notes to buy this book, which, like we said, is up for an Edgar Award, a very prestigious literary award, Edgar as an Edgar Allan Poe. I had a history professor who always wanted me in every paper. He would say, try and break new ground. Find something that no one else has written about scholarly. I rarely did that, but Ann's book is nothing short of groundbreaking. And we had to ask her about her research process because she got it all from both the American and the Russian side, everywhere in between. We asked her about how writing a book about a spy is inherently difficult, but even more so when you remember that this is a spy that we never caught because he was that good. Not only is it a challenge to write the biography of a spy because they don't leave a visible trail of information for their biographers, but also this one wasn't caught. So there were no trial transcripts. What I did find that was very, very helpful were thousands of pages of FBI reports, though those have to be oftentimes they're redacted. So and there's also fact checking has to go into that. I found some unredacted files, wonderful, uh, at the National Archives in College Park. And I had this fabulous Russian translator working with me. We talked uh, probably uh, twice a month, three hours each meeting. She would dig through trying to find articles, all kinds of information. And I think the greatest contribution were the letters she found. You know, letters are always a wonderful source. And so letters from George, letters from his wife when he was here, letters he sent to the GRU, you know, just fabulous uh, collection of letters. And they're they're interwoven throughout the book. And those letters uh, were just, uh, you know, an excellent uh, contribution and they helped all kinds of things fit together, many pieces of the puzzle, answer several questions. But there were also yearbooks, maps, you know, property records, ship manifests, passports, arrest records, all sorts of application forms, military files, even inscriptions in books. I mean, there was a lot. And then there were the secondary sources. That'll do it for today. So good to be back with everybody. Don't forget to go and buy or download Sleeper Agent from Ann Hagedorn. Special thanks to her. We'll have to have her back on the program. She was a pleasure to talk to. And she's now back in Ohio for good, living within sight of the Ohio River, working on her next great project, I'm sure. Another special thanks to Ray Smith from Oak Ridge. Such a smart and engaging character. I really appreciate him making time to speak with us as well. We're locked in. It's a brand new season of Ohio V. The World. That means episodes every other Tuesday. Be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. That'll put every episode this year directly into your ears. We got some amazing stuff coming up we're working on and try to make every new season the best one yet. I think we've done that. Last season was our best work to date, and we'll try and top it here in 2022. We'll be with you into the fall this year, so look for a lot of good episodes still to come. Starting out with our next show for our Memorial Day 2022, we will relive America's 1989 war with Manuel Noriega and Panama. We have some amazing guests. We'll learn the background of another one of America's little-known wars. We'll talk with people who lived through it, and even the family of some who made the ultimate sacrifice. A very interesting episode, some of our best work we've ever done. So we try to make the best podcast about the U.S.-Panama War that's ever been made. Thanks to our sponsors and to everybody at Evergreen Podcast. Go to evergreenpodcast.com. You can hear all our past shows on there, a bunch of great history pods like Conflicted, the very popular Burn the Boats, uh, warriors in their own words. We're kind of making a almost an homage to a warrior in their own words episode next episode. And there's some great new true crime shows uh, on the network as well that they've been onboarding this year. Awesome to be part of such a growing network of shows. And again, it's evergreenpodcast.com. Go find a new show that, that you can binge listen to this summer. Thanks for coming back. Keep pulling for Ukraine and their struggle for freedom. A special shout out to our friend Brandon Krastowski, the amazing restaurateur and humanitarian in Cleveland. Just got back from the Ukrainian border with Poland. 
uh, reading his articles about it in The Plain Dealer, uh, making food for hundreds of thousands of there's millions of refugees over there. And he was making, uh, and he was working with World Central Kitchen. They just had a headquarters of theirs in Ukraine destroyed by a Russian rocket attack, but they are doing amazing work. Kudos to Brandon, a great Ohioan, for doing his part. If you're looking for a way to support the Ukrainian people, go make a donation today to the World Central Kitchen, wck.org, to help support their efforts to keep feeding our Ukrainian brothers and sisters. Again, wckworldcentralkitchen.org. That'll do it. We'll see you next time on Ohio versus the World. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.